You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Today's show is also brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Scurvy Pete, Kane, Kenway, Hefe, Zuman, Nopales, Blacktip, Matthew the Navigator, Mossman, LeChuck, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt, thank you for listening. In 1536, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V returned to Europe in triumph. In fact, he was honored in Rome itself in a triumph, like a Roman triumph. Chariots and prisoners in chains, chests of treasure, and the emperor himself in purple robes at the head. At that moment, I imagine Charles could have reclaimed the imperial throne of Rome, the real imperial throne of Rome. You know, they say the Holy Roman Empire is a misnomer. It wasn't very holy, it was more German than Roman, and it wasn't truly an empire. The Holy Roman Emperor's power was in reality derived mostly from his other titles, He would occasionally serve as a unifying force for the many princes and dukes in Germany, but other than that, not truly an emperor. But after his triumph in Rome, Charles might really have done it. He was a returning hero. He was the returning hero. He had vanquished the Ottoman pirates in the battle for Tunis. He had freed the Western Mediterranean from their grasp, and, well, he had reopened trade. And there is no better way to win the hearts of your subjects than making them more money. Not only had the Battle for Tunis reopened many of the lucrative trade routes in the Mediterranean, but Charles and his court and his triumph were directly enriching nearly every artist and artisan in Italy. Philip Ghost tells us, quote, The emperor returned home the hero of Europe, the crusader and knight-errant who had vanquished the scourge of Christendom, and countless presses and studios worked overtime to immortalize him and his exploit. End quote. There were paintings painted and sculptures sculpted and poems written. All of the artists and writers in Italy were working on projects intended to glorify the Holy Roman Emperor. And not just the artists, but craftsmen were given work too. Think about the need for ceremonial robes and boots and uniforms that would have to be made for the triumph. Think about the horses and carriages and chariots, and think about the armorers in Italy. Charles was usually portrayed in his paintings wearing one or another of his sets of gleaming plate mail, and he usually chose to wear them in all his greatest public appearances. I mean, look them up, they're fantastic. 
They're always bright and shining with trim made of bronze or silver or gold, often of all three. So, in 1536, he was making a lot of people very rich. He was a popular man in Renaissance Italy. He was lining pockets all across the country and building his support, especially in Rome. Which is kind of funny. See, the symbolism of a Roman triumph in Rome is obvious, but Charles wasn't actually the ruler of Rome. I mean, he kind of was. See, Charles was in control of the Kingdom of Naples, which included most of southern Italy, but it wasn't really part of the Holy Roman Empire. At least that question was up for some debate at the time. And then Charles was also the Rex Italiae, the King of Italy. Now, the Kingdom of Italy included most of central and northern Italy at one point, but then Venice and the Republic of Genoa and the Papal States, including a host of other smaller principalities, broke away. And Rome was in the Papal States. It hadn't been part of the Kingdom of Italy for about 500 years. So, the title... King of Italy included Rome as a technicality, but the Pope was actually the monarch in Rome. Venice and Genoa sort of recognized the kingship of Charles, but he didn't actually have any power there. They were merely allies. So, he was the King of Italy, but not actually the King of Italy, except for Southern Italy, of which he wasn't the king, but was actually the king. Does that make sense? The point is, after Tunis, Charles had client kings in... Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, and then the Netherlands, parts of France, and Switzerland, kind of, Germany, Austria, Hungary, and most of Italy. France and England were the only European states without strong personal ties to Charles. England had been in the bag until King Henry severed ties with the church and divorced Catherine of Aragon, who was Charles's aunt. And then there were the Protestant states in Germany that were on the verge of open revolt, but all of those aside... Charles was in control of most of the former Western Roman Empire. What he didn't control was the former Eastern Roman Empire. That was in the hands of his primary rival, Suleiman the Magnificent. However, in that department, things were looking good for Charles. The Ottoman advance into Europe had been halted at Vienna by Charles' brother Ferdinand, and Ferdinand was busy taking back some of that Hungarian and Austrian territory. Charles had officially negotiated a military alliance with the Safavid dynasty over in Persia that boxed in the Ottoman Empire between the Holy Roman Empire and the Persian Empire, and they were coordinating their efforts against the Ottomans. The Barbary problem in the Maghreb seemed to be solved after the battle for Tunis. Charles had reinstalled his... One kind of hates to call him a puppet, but he was a Muslim king that paid taxes to Charles. Barbarossa and his pirates were on the run, and Charles stood astride the Mediterranean. However, his ear Barbarossa was not to be beaten so easily. This is episode 80, The Scourge of Christendom. The loss of Tunis was a serious blow to Barbarossa. He was the Pasha of North Africa in name. But Suleiman now had problems in Hungary and on the border with Persia. Barbarossa was supposed to take all of the Maghreb off his hands and not bother Suleiman with African or Mediterranean problems. The defeat at Tunis looked bad, and Suleiman just might decide to 
go in a different direction. That meant for Barbarossa, imprisonment and a likely beheading. Those were things to be avoided if possible. Plus, Barbarossa had his honor and his own position to consider. He was unwilling to return to Istanbul to inform the sultan of his defeat and to apologize without a little something to salve the wound. Barbarossa moved to Bonn and made it his acting capital. Sinan Rais, the great Jew, had a fleet of 27 galleons waiting there. Now that wasn't all of Barbarossa's Mediterranean strength, but many of the privateers that had been his were now scattered after Tunis. So for the moment, that was all he had to work with. But on board that collection of 27 galleys, he had a collection of flags and uniforms and sails. See, Barbarossa and Sinan Rais were in the habit of collecting the elements needed for a good false flag attack from every ship that they captured. Mostly that meant Genoa, Spain, and Venice. All three of those nations had been present at the battle for Tunis, and word was spreading around Europe that the triumphant king, Charles, was returning. Now Barbarossa had his fleet readied. They raised European flags, mostly Spanish but some Italian, and they put on European uniforms. They put away their turbans and scimitars, and some of them even cut their beards or shaved. Then they set sail north and west for the island of Menorca. Now, Menorca is one of the Balearic Islands off the coast of Spain. They have a rich and long history. Greek, Phoenician, Carthaginian, Roman, and Vandal armies once manned and even improved upon the great fortress on Menorca. Following that, Catalan, Morocco, Aragon, and finally Spain held the islands for a time. Now, they were almost constantly under threat from the Barbary pirates. Oruge, Hizir, and Sinan Rais had all raided the islands at one point or another, and on one of those raids they captured so many slaves from one of the Balearic islands called Formentera that the island was completely depopulated. Now, they didn't capture or kill everybody on the island, just the men old enough to work oars and the women suitable enough for the harems. That left the elderly, the very young, and the disabled. And they left the island. They all went to Menorca, where they had that fantastic fortress. Now, there's a funny little quirk about the population of Menorca that brings into question a lot of the story that's to follow. Remember way back in the 1st century CE, when the Second Temple was destroyed in Jerusalem, and the Jewish diaspora sent thousands of Jews to Iberia? Those became the Sephardi Jews. Well, a few hundred years later, the Vandals invaded Iberia, and they made life really awful for the Iberian Sephardi Jews. And a lot of them fled to the Balearic Islands, especially to Menorca. It had that great fortress, which they could use to defend themselves against the Vandals, who didn't have much of a navy. Now, the descendants of those Sephardi Jews were still on Menorca, Spain had reclaimed the island long ago, but most of those Sephardi Jews were officially conversos, but it may have in many ways been like Jamaica. It was an island, and whenever the Inquisitors came snooping, they could all be good Catholics, but once they left, the people would be free to practice their religion, Judaism, in peace. Keep that possibility in mind here. At almost the same moment that Charles V was having his triumph in Rome, 
the fleet of Barbarossa arrived at the Balearic Islands. They arrived at Menorca at the Ila Pinto in the harbor outside a city called Mahon. Now they were flying their Spanish flags high out in front, and by all appearances they seemed to be a victorious squadron of Spanish galleys returning from Tunis. The occupants of Mahon had no way of knowing that Charles and his assembled forces were currently in Rome. If they were returning from their battle to Spain, which would make sense, they would have stopped at Menorca for water and rest. The soldiers that were manning the walls of that great fortress loaded all of the cannon with powder, but they didn't put any shot in. No cannonballs were loaded. Then they fired off the blanks in salute to the returning heroes. Those returning heroes returned the salute. First, they did so without shot, which was the typical procedure that ensured the defenders of the fortress that they were, in fact, Spanish sailors. Then they reloaded the guns, not just with powder, but with shot. They maneuvered their ships into a choice position, and they opened fire. Cannonballs and musket shot and arrows fell on the defenders of the fortress, and those defenders had all swarmed up to the walls to greet their incoming compatriots. This was a slaughter. The defenders of the great fortress at Menorca were broken after only a few minutes of bombardment, and Barbarossa had the harbor and the fort under his command. Now, Sinan Rais took over the operations at the wharf. He captured every ship in the harbor, including one stately, beautiful Portuguese galleon that was filled with treasure. She had silver and spices from the east and all the riches of colonial expansion in her holds. The other ships there at Menorca had treasure as well, but treasure of a different sort. Most of them were galleys that were intended for the defense of the harbor, and those galleys were manned by Muslim slaves. Many of them were privateers, or former privateers, that had once served Barbarossa and Sinan Rais. Some of them even had served Oruge Barbarossa. Meanwhile, Barbarossa had all of the soldiers in the fort put in chains and loaded onto his vessels. Then he went to the mainland and into town. The events that followed would seem familiar to anyone who has listened to the Pirate History Podcast. It was not unlike the raids of Henry Morgan or Francois Lolonnais or any of the buccaneers except for one fairly major component. They took somewhere in the neighborhood of 6,000 suitable men and women as slaves. Healthy, Catholic, beautiful, and strong, all of them were loaded up. Then Barbarossa put his other lieutenant, Dragut, in command of the fortress. He gave the island to Dragut to hold against Spain, if at all possible, and actually he would successfully defend the fortress from recapture several times. Philip Ghost told us in 1932 that the fortress still bore the name of Barbarossa. Sadly, only seven years later, in 1939, during the Spanish Civil War, it was destroyed, utterly. Now, about the Jewish population of Mahon. They were mostly left untouched. While nearly all of the Catholic population was removed, the Jews were left there, on the island. There was some anti-Semitic grumbling that the Jews were in league with the pirates. 
However, most people in Europe, and Spain even, accepted that the great Jew, Sinan Raiz, would have taken exception to Barbarossa enslaving Jews, so they were spared. I mean, everybody knows that Barbarossa just hates Catholics, so the Jews in this situation just got lucky. And that was accepted all throughout Europe, except for a few of the more vocal anti-Semites. But bear with me for a second here. What if those anti-Semitic rabble-rousers were actually, in this case, correct? You know, not in the baby-eating, in-league-with-Lucifer way that they like to put things, but what if some of the Jews on Menorca, there in Mahone, actually did help Barbarossa? I mean, Sinan Raiz and the Barbarossa brothers had been running Sephardi exiles from Spain to the Ottoman lands for decades now, to the Jewish population of Spain, they were heroes, and they were bound to have had some contacts there on Menorca. And Sinan was known for his skills in smuggling and infiltration. So who's to say he couldn't have made his way into town without anyone knowing, and conspired with some of the locals who wanted a little revenge on Spain? Locals who might have suggested the notion of a rumor of a possibility that the king, King Charles, might be on his way there right now, and that the people of Menorca should be ready to greet him. Now, there's no evidence of this. This is pure speculation. I just love tales of oppressed peoples conspiring to overthrow their overlords. But any Spanish soldiers that might have been able to implicate the conspirators here were now safely chained up in the Ottoman galleys. So, it's a what-if, but it's an idea I kind of like. Now, Barbarossa took those 6,000 slaves directly to Istanbul. Suleiman had already, by this point, learned about his defeat at Tunis. But Barbarossa now had news that should make up for it. Yes, we were defeated, but we then followed it up by taking a Spanish stronghold, and my best man, Dragut, is now in command there. Oh, and by the way, here's 6,000 slaves to sweeten the deal. Suleiman accepted this apology, and he granted Barbarossa with a task. The task was to make war on King Charles, an endless, terrible war. To that end, he granted Barbarossa 200 more galleys, and he also introduced Barbarossa to a naval commander, a man who would go on to become the third leg of the tripod that propped up Hizir Barbarossa, and that man's name was Murat Raiz. I say that Suleiman introduced them, but Barbarossa almost certainly knew Murat Raiz, or at least he knew of him. Murat was there at Rhodes back in 1522, though back then he wasn't a commander. He sailed with Piri Rais at the time and commanded units in the Aegean fleet later on. He was, in the Ottoman navy, kind of a rising star and something of a hotshot. This was a subtle message from the sultan. I forgive you this time, but screw up and here's your replacement. Suleiman sent Barbarossa out with the ships and the men needed to do his bidding, and with Murat Rais as his second-in-command. That team ravaged the Apulian coast of southeastern Naples. You know how Italy looks kind of like a boot? Well, the Apulian coast is the heel. 
Barbarossa captured city after city. He occupied additional fortresses. He brought shipping in the Adriatic and the Ionian seas to a halt. It was the raid on Menorca over and over and over again all along the coast of Italy. This was making war on Charles's empire. Meanwhile, though, Charles V wasn't the only European commander having praise heaped on him in a distinctly Roman fashion. In Genoa, the Republic was actively working toward a Roman Republican system, a Senate, a caste structure, and even a system of familial dominance. You know how in the Roman Republic, political and social power was held by different families, the Gracchii or the Julii clans, for example? Well, Genoa had organized themselves into 19 distinct ruling clans. They were already powerful Italian noble families, but now they were constitutionally recognized political bodies. And they voted unanimously, in one of the only votes that they would vote in unanimously, to award Andrea Doria, their patron, the admiral responsible for the victory at Tunis, the office of censor. In Rome, the office of censor had the power over the census, first of all, but then power over the elections, the power of veto, and power over the magistrates. It's sort of like the Supreme Court, only they gave that office to one man, Andrea Doria. Now, he refused to accept a crown. He wouldn't be a king, which made sense in a system that was working towards the Roman Republic, but he was still made the most powerful single person in Genoa. And he certainly wanted it to sound like he was reluctantly accepting this responsibility for the good of the people. Whenever Julius Caesar or Sulla or any of the men in Rome who were raised to the office of dictator, whenever they accepted that responsibility, they made it very clear to the public that it was a responsibility, even when they used their additional powers for their own good. And the ruling families of Genoa played along. Andrea Doria wanted all the powers of a king, but he didn't want all of the bad press that came with it. It's all part of that Renaissance trend towards Republican Rome. But after he was granted the censorship, Doria went back out. He started causing his own trouble in the southern Mediterranean. He captured cities in Africa. He battled Barbary fleets and sunk them. He captured slaves of his own. Now, most writers like to make a big deal about the slaves captured by the Barbary pirates, and it was a big deal. It was a horror for everyone that was enslaved. But make no mistake here, the Catholics were capturing as many Muslim slaves as they could. The difference is they didn't capture slaves from everywhere. Whenever they captured a location that they wanted to rule over, they couldn't depopulate the cities, nor could they suffer the bad press of capturing slaves there. But the privateers were another matter. Whenever they were captured, they were always put on two galleys and made to row. Now, Suleiman was understandably upset at the actions of Andrea Doria. His forces in Hungary were busy pulling back in the face of that Austrian campaign, so he decided to put those forces to use elsewhere. There was a man in the government of Suleiman the Magnificent named Lufti. 
He was Albanian in origin, and he was a veteran of the wars all throughout Eastern Europe and the Sack of Rhodes. In 1535, Suleiman made Lufti the third vizier in the Ottoman Empire. That was, well, the viziers were essentially the sultan's cabinet. The grand vizier was sort of the prime minister. His power was second only to the sultan. Lufti would one day go on to hold that position, famously, but not yet. Then the second vizier was kind of like a secretary of state, but the third vizier was probably the secretary of defense, kind of the top general here. In August of 1537, Lufti sailed to join his forces, which were 300,000 strong, with the fleet of Hayreddin Barbarossa. And that fleet carried the sultan himself. Suleiman left the Grand Vizier back in Istanbul in power, and took Lufti and his 300,000 men to join up with these pirates. That fleet focused on the coastal cities and the islands that belonged to the Republic of Venice. This was in western Greece and along the coast of Croatia. Within a month, that force had captured Syros, Aegina, Eos, Peros, Tinos, Carpathos, Kassos, Caetheria, and Naxos, among others. Now, that might seem hard to believe, but we have to remember that Barbarossa was not in any conventional sense, a pirate. He was an admiral, and he had three of the greatest naval minds of his time working under him. Murat Rais lived up to the hype here. He carried out every order he was given with extreme prejudice. Sinan Rais was, well, excepting possibly Andrea Doria, the greatest naval tactician alive. Whenever it turned to battle on the water... Barbarossa turned to his friend, the great Jew. And Dragut would... Well, one day, he would go on to be called, due to some of the exploits that occurred here and some of his later exploits, quote, the greatest pirate warrior of all time and the uncrowned king of the Mediterranean, end quote. This triumvirate, Dragut, Murat Rais, and Sinan Rais, well, they won Barbarossa his battles. They did so at Barbarossa's direction, but they were the men on the ground. Now, every time they took one of those mini islands, they left some of their men there to hold them. That's why the sultan brought so many soldiers, so that they could capture and hold these lands. But about a month after Lufti and the sultan arrived, the rest of the fleet sailed for Castro in the southwestern tip of Naples, the tip of the heel of the boot. Suleiman the Magnificent was met there by a French ambassador. The ambassador assured him that, well, this was the moment. France was on its way. Francis I had armies on the march. The Franco-Ottoman alliance was making their move. The Ottomans there captured Castro and took 10,000 or so slaves. In September, they moved on from Castro to an island called Corfu in northwestern Greece, in the Ionian Sea. Now, that was where Francis I was supposed to meet them. He was going to aid them in besieging the city. But his forces weren't there. 
The Ottomans would find out much later that Francis had been halted in the Netherlands. His army was engaged in battle there instead of where they were supposed to be in Greece. But they didn't know that at the time, and this was a problem. The fortress of Corfu was manned by 4,000 soldiers and guarded by 700 guns. Suleiman may have brought 300,000 men with him, but you leave 5,000 men here, 10,000 men there, and it goes on and on, his forces were diminished. Philip Gose writes of Corfu, quote, He thereupon sailed to Corfu and landed 25,000 men and 30 cannon within three miles of the castle. Four days later, he was reinforced by 25 warships. The largest gun in the world was brought into action for the first time, a 50-pounder which fired 19 times in three days, a thing to marvel at. The monster's accuracy was not worthy of its size, however, as she only planted her mark five times on the fortress in a month's siege. The resistance proved too strong, and on September 17th, Suleiman sailed off the attack with the remark that a thousand such castles were not worth the life of one of his brave men. End quote. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Barbarossa continued that campaign in the Adriatic, but the massive fleet of Lufti and Suleiman, they left. They returned home to Istanbul. In the end, after this about a month and a half long campaign, Barbarossa claimed his personal spoils as, quote, 400,000 pieces of gold, 1,000 girls, and 1,500 boys. I should note that nearly all of these 2,500 prisoners were of good birth. There were noble children as there, as well as the children of merchants and landowners. And then Barbarossa sent the most elegant and beautiful of the boys he had captured onto Suleiman and his court. He draped them in the finest silk and gave them bolts of silk to carry under their arms. They had bags of fine potpourri around their necks, and every one of those boys was carrying a purse filled with gold. This was how Barbarossa paid his taxes. This campaign was what prompted the Republic of Venice to write Pope Paul III back in Rome, asking for his aid against the Ottomans. 
This was kind of a big deal. See, Venice and the Pope weren't on the best of terms. I mean, the Venetians were Catholic, yeah, but they had occasionally fought against the interests of the Pope back in the Italian Wars, so they were desperate. They cut deals, no doubt, and the two states joined into a holy alliance that included most of central and northern Italy. Now, some histories will tell you that the Holy League of 1538 that followed was an alliance between the Pope, the Republic of Venice, Spain, the Knights of Malta, and the Holy Roman Empire. While that is technically true, it's a little bit misleading, though. It was an alliance between Venice, the Pope, and Charles V. See, the Holy Roman Empire, what had traditionally been the Holy Roman Empire, wasn't really involved here. Any German states that leaned Protestant weren't going to join into a holy alliance, and Austria and most of Hungary, basically the rest of what was traditionally the Holy Roman Empire, had their hands full. They were either battling it out with the Protestants or cleaning up the Ottoman forces in Hungary. But when the League secured Charles's signature, they secured not only the aid of Spain, but the Knights of Malta and three other powers that, in hindsight, weren't really part of the empire. There was Sicily, there was the Kingdom of Naples, and then there was Andrea Doria. Now, not officially Genoa, but Andrea Doria was the personal owner and commander of most of what was, in essence, the Genoese navy, such as it was. Now, the Knights of Malta were that same holy order of the Knights Hospitalier, the Knights of St. John the Baptist, the same as the Knights of Rhodes that had built a fleet of privateers to counter Ottoman expansion. And they were technically an independent power. However, they were so closely allied with the King of Spain, Charles, that... Well, all he had to do was ask. They were a smaller force in 1538 than they had been in the past, but they had ten large galleys that were filled with some of the best sailors and soldiers that Europe had to offer. Now, Charles ordered his shipyards in Spain and the gunneries in the Netherlands to produce an armada, an armada of top-of-the-line galleons. He conscripted any acceptable galleys from his holdings in Italy, mostly Naples, and, you know, southern Italy has a little bit of coastline, so a few galleys were in their fleet. There were less since Barbarossa had arrived and started wrecking the coast, but it was still a significant navy. Andrea Doria brought somewhere around 30 galleys to the alliance, all of them personally commissioned and owned and commanded by himself. So you have the Genoese navy, about 30 strong. You have the privateer fleet of the Knights of Rhodes, which was about 10 strong. You have the Neapolitan fleet, which was significant. And then you had a Spanish armada of galleons. That's what Charles V brought into the alliance. And then add to that the papal and Venetian galleys, and you have a force of, quote, 50 sailing galleons, nearly 200 ships of war, carrying some 60,000 men and 2,500 guns. End quote. The fleet was put in the overall command of Andrea Doria. His two lieutenants were his nephew, Filippino Doria, and another Italian admiral, a Nepalese conditero named Ferrano Gonzaga. He was actually related to Giulia Gonzaga, that 
noble woman that had only barely escaped the clutches of Barbarossa in the past, although exactly how they were related, I don't know. A distant cousin of some sort. They were from different branches of the house. Now, all of this, this Holy League of 1538, took almost a year to organize. When everyone was ready, the Spanish fleet left Spain in August of 1538. They met up with Andrea Doria, who took command and headed south. They met up with the fleet of the Papal States and the fleet of Sicily, and then they added the Maltese privateers to their ranks, and everyone set a heading north. Near Castro, they joined Ferrano Gonzaga and the Nepalese fleet, and then they rendezvoused at Corfu on 22 September 1538, where the fleet of the Republic of Venice joined them. Now, by this time, Barbarossa was long departed from the Ionian Sea. He was well out of the region. He was safely back on his home base at Kos in the Aegean Sea, just off the coast of Turkey. It was a good place for the admiral of the entire Ottoman fleet to make his home. Now, Corfu was not out of the range of Ottoman influence, so Barbarossa learned about their presence relatively quickly. He had the opportunity to send back to Istanbul and request aid. It would have been given to him. The sultan knew that defeating this assembled fleet would have been important. But the time that would have been required for messages to be sent, and then received, and then replied to, and then the reinforcements to get gathered, and the fleet to get ready, and everybody to get to Barbarossa, well, that would mean weeks. Weeks that the Catholic fleet would have to take Greece back. Instead, he sent word on to Suleiman to tell him what was happening, and to request that aid. But he wouldn't be leading that aid. Barbarossa prepared to depart immediately with just what he had on hand, and that wasn't much. He may have been the ultimate Ottoman sea commander, but the Ottoman navy was spread all around the Mediterranean. All he had there at his island were 122 galleys and galleos, and he had his commanders. Andrea Doria was a force to be reckoned with, and Ferrano Gonzaga was as well, but compared with the triumvirate that backed up Barbarossa, as well as the myriad other talented sea commanders he had in his command, well, in August of 1538, it would have been hard to say which was the better side, but things were shaping up to decide that question. See, this battle has often been hailed as the great fight between Barbarossa and Andrea Doria, a clash of titans, and it sort of was. It was their first meeting at sea in more than 20 years. But that may not be the most fair or accurate description of the battle to come. According to Edward Kritzler in Jewish Pirates of the Caribbean, quote, While Barbarossa's name was feared throughout Christendom, he was not really a naval commander or even much of a sailor. Instead, he occupied himself with building his navy and plotting its moves, and left most of the sea battles to his favored captain, Sinan. End quote. Now, I don't know that I totally agree with his assessment. The head of the entire Mediterranean fleet of the Ottoman Empire wasn't a naval commander, but I get what I think he's trying to say here. Barbarossa was always more focused on strategy than tactics. He organized and delegated work to his lieutenants, and he chose the best to be had in the empire. He chose 
goals for victory, but he left the implementation of his overall strategy, the tactics on the ground, to his lieutenants. Now, Kritzler's tone seems similar to centuries of historians that called Barbarossa a pirate, but I don't think that's accurate. He was an admiral. He wasn't Blackbeard. He was Henry Morgan. He was honestly significantly more powerful than Morgan ever became. You don't want an admiral that tries to command every move in the battle. An admiral or a general on land that attempts to do that, well, he's going to fail. Instead, Barbarossa left those decisions to his lieutenants. He trusted them with it. Now, Sinan Rais may have been chief among them on the sea, but he wasn't alone. Dragut commanded a part of the fleet, and Morat Rais, the young buck who was nipping at his heels, had proven himself. He was given a part of the fleet as well. And that's the other thing here. Before you condemn Barbarossa for not you know, stomping around the decks of his ships and bellowing orders, we need to remember, he was 58 years old here. The bellowing and stomping, well, that was a younger man's game. His talents, and they were considerable, well, they were best used commanding his sub-commanders. You leave those sub-commanders to stomp and bellow. Now, Sinan Rais was only in his 30s here, and Murat may have been as young as 20 years old. Dragut was closer to age in Barbarossa, and consequentially he was probably personally closer to Barbarossa, but he was still young enough to stomp around and bellow out orders. So yes, you could say that this was the contest between Andrea Doria, who was an older man himself, and Barbarossa, but in many ways it was actually a contest between the sub-commanders here. The Ottoman fleet immediately made for a town called Privesa, on the mainland coast of Greece. Privesa is situated just southeast of Corfu, only a few leagues, and it commands a passage between the mainland and the outlying islands. Any force that wanted to travel from Corfu into the rest of Greece would almost have to take this passage. When Barbarossa and his sub-commanders arrived here, they were issuing a challenge. Barbarossa was daring Andrea Doria to enter into the contest for Greece, which suggests something to me. Speaking in the broadest possible strokes and making some generalizations, frankly, European and Middle Eastern and even further Eastern warfare, there tends to be a divide in how they choose to fight. Europeans have a history of marching to the battlefield and issuing that challenge, while people from the Middle East and all the way to China tend to grab the advantage in warfare whenever they are able. However, Barbarossa seemed to be fighting in a very European style, which is strange. Not because he was an Ottoman commander, but because... Well, Barbarossa may have been an admiral and may have been an important man, but in many ways the reason that he's seen as a pirate is because he was among the first to fight like a pirate. One of the reasons that pirates are seen as honorless dogs to so many of the Europeans is because they fought in a fashion that, well, it wasn't European. They didn't issue challenges to a town before raiding it. They just raided at night, if possible, when everybody was asleep. This is a style of warfare that would have been more common in the East. 
you find an advantage, and you seize it. And Barbarossa did so. He fought in the same way that Henry Morgan or Blackbeard or any of the other famous names in piracy did, except here. Here he issued that challenge. It seems that he wanted to decide the fate of the Mediterranean once and for all. Or perhaps he was just trying to save the islands in Greece from conquest, to buy time for Suleiman to gather the rest of the forces of the Ottoman Empire and bring them to defeat this extremely powerful European fleet. They chose their battlefield carefully. See, Prevesa is home to a fortress that not only guards the coast, but also a narrow passage into a large bay. It was Sinan Rais that put forth the idea of capturing and manning that castle at Prevesa. Now, there wasn't actually anybody in the castle at the moment, so there was little to be lost in taking it. However, Barbarossa didn't think it was a necessary step. It would be an unnecessary allocation of resources. The bay, and thus the passage, wasn't the key to victory here. But Murat Rais and Dragut argued in favor of Sinan Rais's idea. They stepped up and stood lockstep with their brother. Together, that triumvirate convinced Barbarossa to order the castle occupied, and the guns of the castle repaired if necessary and manned. And it's a good thing they did. On 24 September 1538, Andrea Doria and the entire Catholic fleet arrived. I can only imagine how the Ottoman sailors must have felt, and the nerves that they must have had when they saw that fleet of well over twice their number, and not only more than their number, but so many bigger and better ships. However, they had chosen the battlefield. They knew what was coming, and they were ready. Doria made the first move, and it was an attempt at landfall. He clearly had the same idea as Sinan Rais to take the castle there. However, Murat Rais was there, on the sea with a squadron to complicate the landing of Andrea Doria. Now, he only had a few ships, so the Spanish and Italian forces were able to make their landfall, but they were still under fire from Murat Rais. But when they finally got ashore the guns of the fortress opened up. The Catholic soldiers were caught in a crossfire and forced to retreat while under fire. They took heavy losses in that first retreat. This was a major slip-up on the part of Andrea Doria. He was timid about taking the castle there. Had he been willing to commit his forces properly, he could have easily defeated Murat Rais. He could have taken the fortress and manned it with far more men than Barbarossa could spare. He had the ships, he had the soldiers, but he was unwilling to risk them. Maybe that's a smart move. Maybe he was saving his forces for later, but that fortress would have been a huge advantage for him. And his sub-commanders, his nephew and fellow admirals, well, they knew it was a slip-up as well. They insisted that another attempt be made at a landing, and taking the castle, and this time in strength. Now, Doria agreed to this, but this was a poor decision as well. It was too late. He'd already shown his hand to Barbarossa and his sub-commanders. When the Holy League arrived the next day to take the fortress, Murat Rais didn't have the few ships he had had the day before. He had many, many more, enough ships to stop any attempt at landing, now, there was a brief skirmish here, but it was all in an attempt to withdraw. 
See, they went in strength, but it was in strength respective to what Murat Rais had had the day before. Once again, all of the Catholic commanders assembled, and they decided it was time to marshal the full weight of their entire fleet and to fall on the coast and the commander Murat Rais. This was a good strategy, finally. Use their numbers to their advantage. But they had a problem. The wind. The reason Sinan Rais wanted to take the fortress was twofold. First, there were a lot of guns up in that castle, and Doria would certainly want them. It's best to deny your enemy anything that they want, but second, there was the wind. See, here in this small passage between the mainland and the island, the Barbary fleet was facing northwest, toward the Catholics, and the winds close to shore there were in their favor. The Holy League, though, were all facing southeast facing contrary winds. They couldn't get into position for a fight like that, not a position that was favorable. But even with that handicap working against them, the entire Catholic fleet of the Holy League, in all her splendor, sailed in to destroy Morat Rais and to take the castle. But it all fell apart. The galleons and the other ships that relied on the wind, well, they were pushed away from the shore and further south from the battlefield. The galleys, which were able to make for shore, well, they weren't strong enough to take on Murat Rais, who had once again been reinforced. They were forced to turn around and run and rejoin the safety of the galleons. So the entire fleet decided to continue on. They may have failed to take the castle, but they were still intact. They hadn't lost anything important. So they just sailed past the castle. They just sailed past the fleet of Murat Rais, it appeared that there would be smooth sailing ahead. You see, here's why they didn't expect Murat Rais to be reinforced time and time again. They thought he was all that was there. They thought he had been sent there to stop them from taking the castle. Barbarossa was still somewhere in Greece, probably Istanbul, dealing with the Sultan to get a large fleet together. They thought that Murat Rais was all they had to deal with. If he were to sail up behind them... Well, that wouldn't prove an issue. They were big enough to destroy him if he tried to fight. So Pervesa was out, but they could continue on and complete their mission, leaving him behind. However, when dawn rose on the 28th, there wasn't any wind to carry the largest ships in the fleet. So Andrea Doria ordered the entire fleet to wait there. The galleys were to stay within range under the protective umbrella of the large galleons. But that's when they saw the Barbary Armada, the fleet of Barbarossa himself. It wasn't just Murat Rais here on the coast. It was the entire Mediterranean strength of Hizir Barbarossa. But even that was a tiny fleet compared to the Holy League, so Doria didn't expect them to attack. He ordered his ships to hold position to wait for the wind. It took a full three hours for his sub-commanders, for his nephew Filipino and the Nepalese admiral, to convince Andrea Doria, the man in command of the entire fleet of the Holy League, that, yeah, the Ottomans were here to attack them. They were in position and moving in quickly. Doria denied it and denied it. He thought it would be insanity. Nobody would be so bold or so brash or so foolish as to attack a force as strong as his, but that's what makes his ear Barbarossa and his lieutenants pirates. 
They were bold and they were brash and they were often insane. They may have offered challenge, but when the time came, they took the opportunity and seized it. They taught the pirates that were to come, the pirates of the buccaneering and the golden age, that sometimes you had to be bold and brash and insane if you wanted to defeat the might of an empire. The Ottoman fleet, when they were ready to enter battle, was situated into four units. Barbarossa and Sinan Rais sailed together in the vanguard, the center column that was aimed directly at the heart of the Catholic fleet. Now, there were other commanders and other vessels, but it was Barbarossa and Sinan Rais that led that unit. The left and right flanks were commanded by other captains. Now, all of those captains are great names in Ottoman history. However, in the history of piracy, unimportant. Their job here was to guard the shore in the case of the left flank and to keep Doria from taking the battle out to sea in the case of the right flank. The other two legs of the tripod, Murat Rais and Dragut, commanded the rear guard. They were sort of a reserve. They were to stay back, behind the battle, behind the main line, until battle was joined. And then, once fighting had commenced, their orders were to jump in, wherever any of the other ships in the fleet needed help. Should Andrea Doria flank left and try to make for the shore, they were to head there and stop him. Should they try for the sea, they were to head left and stop him. You can almost picture the Ottoman fleet looking kind of like the letter Y only turned almost upside down, facing southeast, just about 4.30 on the clock. They were creating a net to trap the Catholic League in. Now, the first contact of the battle came between that right flank, guarding the sea, and the Venetian flagship, Galeone de Venezia, the Galleon of Venice. This was a large galleon, filled with big guns, but becalmed. The galleys of the right flank... Well, they just surrounded her, and they took a lot of punishment at the hands of those many big guns, but slowly they began to overwhelm the Galleon of Venice. I'm reminded here of the pirates in the Bay of Panama about 150 years later. They were fighting similar odds. They had rowboats and were fighting galleons. But they had, well, they had excellent, accurate muskets. They won easily, but... The Barbary pirates had to fight hard with mostly bows and arrows against cannons, but they did fight hard. As time passed, it was clear that the Barbary pirates had the upper hand and were about to take the flagship of the Venetian fleet. But then the wind picked up and Doria set his vanguard out to aid the Galleon of Venice. But Dragut did his job and he jumped in to stop them. Doria tried to get around that engagement with Dragut and Murat Rais, but the two commanders acted in unison and trapped him between them. Murat and Dragut had once again blocked the Catholic League. Now, Doria finally decided here to go on the offensive. He had the numbers and he had the wind. It was time to use them. The squadron of Ferrano Gonzaga was joined by that of Filipino Doria, and then Giovanni Andrea Doria, another nephew, and the Knights of Malta all joined in to charge down the center of the Ottoman fleet to break Sinan Rais and Tizir Barbarossa himself. With those numbers, that's the best way to ensure victory. Cut off the head. The ships engaged in an all-out war. 
with their ships and the wind and their commanders who were all talented at sea, they very clearly had the upper hand. They fell on the Ottoman fleet in force. All of their cannons erupted in a line, in a way that had never been seen in the Mediterranean before, in a way that very likely had never been seen in the world before. Smoke was filling the air, and it looked like they might defeat the entire Ottoman fleet, defeat the Barbary pirates and Hazir Barbarossa himself, without losing a single vessel. However, all of the ships that had come in to engage the Barbary pirates were Venetian and Spanish. They all depended on the wind, and the wind died. The great Jew, Sinan Rais, and Pasha, Hazir, Hayreddin, Barbarossa, they fell on the becalmed galleons. They overwhelmed them. This was, again, a fight of bows and arrows with a few less-than-accurate muskets against large galleons with big guns, but the pirates were prepared for what they had to face. Pirates from Greece and Turkey and Algiers and Tunis and every corner of the Ottoman Empire that touched the Mediterranean swarmed over the Catholic galleons. It turned to fighting on deck. This time, though, they didn't take slaves. They killed those that they met. This was intended to be a battle fought with big guns at sea, but it turned out that Damascus steel would decide the day. It was a clear defeat. In the push of galleons led by Ferrano Gonzaga and Filipino Doria and Giovanni Andrea Doria, thousands of Catholic European soldiers were dead. There were only hundreds that made it out of that push alive, back to safety. But even still, the Holy League still had the advantage of numbers. They hadn't engaged their entire forces. The Papal fleet was there, as well as the Venetian fleet and the Knights of Malta, and the Genoese navy. It had been the Spanish and Nepalese fleets that had taken the hardest hit. The commanders of all of those fleets urged their commander, Andrea Doria, to take the fight to the pirates, galley to galley, to let European steel decide a battle for a change. They still had the numbers, and if this was the fight it was going to be, they could win. But Andrea Doria chose not to. On the morning of the 29th, he set sail. They turned around and headed for safer waters. He broke the Holy League here. After this fact, the Venetians would blame Andrea Doria and his cowardice, and his greed. There was a long-standing enmity between Genoa and Venice, and the Venetians noted quite sourly that not one of the Genoese ships of Andrea Doria had been either risked or lost. The Pope might not have passed judgment on Andrea Doria, and the Genoese still backed him, but the Nepalese also placed the blame squarely on his head, and it seems that Charles V may have lost some confidence in his admiral here as well. See, this was a major blow to Charles V. Had he been there, he might have changed the outcome. More ships and more men, however... England was causing trouble. Germany was on fire in Protestant revolt. Denmark and the Netherlands were also engulfed in it. And in America, on the island of Jamaica, a bunch of so-called Christians were demanding more Jews be sent out to them. And to top it all off, some Italian pirate working for Francis I of France had just captured one of his treasure galleons in the New World. Charles had a lot of problems on his plate, 
and this defeat was just another one of those. So he accepted it, and he tried and once again failed to get Barbarossa to change sides. He would go on, in a couple of years, to attempt an invasion of Algeria. This was an attempt that Andrea Doria was to lead, even though Andrea Doria opposed the entire idea. In the end, Charles V realized that he had lost the Mediterranean, and he gave it up to Suleiman the Magnificent. This Battle of Prevesa was the third largest battle of the 16th century. It was the last major battle in the world to be fought with a majority of galleys. And it was the galleys that decided the fight against the galleons of Spain, but it became clear in the years to follow that galleons and wind power were the order of the day. It also gave the Ottoman Empire a monopoly on Mediterranean trade. It turned the Mediterranean into a Muslim lake for 30 years. As for the Ottoman commander, Hazir Barbarossa, the Battle of Prevesa was to be his last major engagement. In victory, he chose to retire. He would go on to turn his holdings over to his son, Hassan, and to his closest friend, Dragut. Both would go on at different times to be the Pasha in Algiers and Jerba and eventually Tunis. Barbarossa went to Istanbul, where he served as an advisor to the Sultan, but no longer a commander. In a way, one could see the trio of the elder Barbarossa brother, or Rouge Barbarossa, and his friends Kurtuglu and Piri Rais as the first generation of Barbary pirates. The younger, and far more famous Barbarossa brother, Hizir, would go on to lead the second generation of Barbary pirates, alongside Sinan Rais and Ragut, and both of them would be covered in fame and accolades for the rest of their careers, and that second generation was much more successful than the first. They won the Mediterranean from the Holy Roman Empire. But the trio that was to follow, made up of Murat Rais and the son of Hizir Barbarossa, Hassan Rais, and Hizir Kurtuglu, the son of the elder Kurtuglu, would define the generations of Barbary piracy to come. And they would incorporate an influx of Dutch Protestant rebels and their Jewish allies to turn the Mediterranean into a hotbed of real piracy. Piracy that could not be controlled, not by all the powers of Europe, and not even by the Ottoman Empire itself or Suleiman the Magnificent. Next time we're going to look at those Dutch rebels and their Jewish allies who joined Murat, Hassan, and Hazir. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd also like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everybody who has left us a donation at the website or become a patron on Patreon, as well as everyone who has left us a review or a recommendation to your friends. Without all of you, I couldn't do this, so thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.
let him live on in legend tonight.